Thank you for joining us in the latest installment in our conversations on China's global sharp power. Today, our guest is Sophie Richardson, the China Director at Human Rights Watch. She's a graduate of the University of Virginia, where she published、uh, a volume out of her dissertation, in fact, called "China, Cambodia, and the Five Principles of Peaceful Coexistence," which was an in-depth examination of the PRC's foreign policy since 1950, since the 1954 Geneva Conference,、um, and it included interviews with policymakers on that subject. Subject. But more recently, Sophie has made a name for herself as one of the most articulate and vigorous spokespeople for human rights anywhere, but particularly with respect to human rights in China. And so she joins us now to speak about、um, the institutions of global governance and China's participation in them with respect to human rights. Thank you, Sophie.、Um, so, Sophie. I'd like to ask you to begin actually by talking about the architecture of global human rights. Sure,、uh, you know we focus as an advocacy organization primarily on the ecosystem of institutions and offices within the United Nations, and one of the most important entities is the Human Rights Council, which is a political body where states participate to you know, debate human rights crises, developments in international law, but also to hold one another accountable to establish standards. And those standards are another key piece of the puzzle. There are a number of core、uh, legal instruments that are overseen by treaty bodies. You know, and those bodies review countries' performance on issues like torture, for example, or women's rights on a regular basis. But there's also the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights that reviews、uh, crisis situations. It looks into particular countries. It offers views to the Human Rights Council. And that's a particularly important body, partly because the human, the, the high commissioner can appoint inquiries, for example, into certain kinds of human rights crises. But there are also other bodies within the UN: the Third Committee, the Fifth Committee, human rights components of peacekeeping operations. But perhaps what's most important to know is that the UN system as a whole has four core pillar issues, and human rights is one of those. And so the issue is really meant to permeate. All of the different UN institutions. Thank you.、Um, and I should have said, and I was remiss in not saying earlier, that we're also joined by、um, uh, by my partner in the in the project on China's global sharp power,、uh, Larry Diamond, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Larry,、uh, Sophie, do you, do we see any change under Xi Jinping and the way that the People's Republic of China is relating to this UN、uh, human rights system? Yeah, I think it's very clear that under Xi, Chinese、uh, the the Chinese government's approach to the system has not only become more aggressive and assertive, but also more visible. You know, the Chinese government started experimenting with different ways of sort of thwarting human rights initiatives under previous leaders, but it was able to sort of hide behind the Russias, the Cubas, the Pakistan's. But now China is really sort of a a lead and a much more visible spoiler. Uh, on certain kinds of initiatives, and I think that's been clearest in this series of resolutions the Chinese government has has run in the last few years, proposing clearly ideas that you know would undercut the idea of state accountability、uh, and replace it with you know friendly, non consequential dialogue, you know, but also pushing to essentially erase a role for independent civil society, which is often critical of governments. From UN proceedings, and I think those those kinds of initiatives are much clearer now. And、um, 
I know you have been making the point that uh, China has been pretty much trying to undermine the general principle of accountability for human rights. We understand why China would not want to be held accountable for its own violations within its borders. Why should it care about holding uh, African human rights violators accountable? Well, I think this is a, a sort of a, a principle or a belief that's baked into Xi Jinping's and his allies' views of the world, that they should really not be beholden to anybody, particularly to international institutions. I mean, they're clearly concerned partly about a boomerang effect, right, that supporting the idea of accountability could come back to haunt them. You know, but there's a long-standing neuralgia about country-specific initiatives or about the idea that you know, the leaders of a particular country could actually be held accountable by a body like the International Criminal Court or some kind of ad hoc tribunal or even a debate at the Human Rights Council. Sophia, I wanted to turn our attention to Hong Kong for a moment um, because Hong Kong is, uh, is an instance where a society that enjoyed a great deal of political and civil liberty is now finding that the freedom is being rolled back. Uh, and in particular, the PRC has international commitments um, uh, regarding Hong Kong to maintain uh, Hong Kong's way of life uh, for up to 50 years. And that way of life is fundamentally changing before our eyes. I'm wondering um, what you think the international community's role here is. What sets of tools do we have in order to hold the PRC accountable to its international commitments? And what a, a good strategy for pursuing that might be? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think the the... Beijing's ripping up the Sino-British Joint Declaration and throwing it away uh, it has caused more consternation internationally, perhaps than any other single violation in recent memory. It's really mobilized a lot of government's attention. Uh, I think it's very important to remember that Hong Kong actually is a party to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, where China has signed but not ratified that document. So even if you wanted to set aside the obligations under that bilateral treaty, uh, you know, Beijing has obligations to Hong Kong to respect that higher standard of rights. Uh, you know, one of the lessons to take away is don't sign a bilateral agreement uh, with the Chinese government that doesn't have some kind of redress mechanism attached to it, as, the -British, as was the case with the Sino-British Joint Declaration. Yeah, but I think it, it will be very important for governments to continue to try to engage with people in Hong Kong according to what the ICCPR allows. Uh, but at the same time, I think they have to recognize that the authorities in Hong Kong, and particularly those authorities that have been created by the new national security law, are deeply problematic. Uh, we have supported the call for targeted individual sanctions on some of those people and the idea that governments should offer up avenues for safe haven for people who want to leave Hong Kong. But ultimately, you know, again, it's critical that governments and systems like the UN puncture Beijing's sense of impunity. You know, Beijing does not believe that there will really be particularly negative consequences for it as a result of having robbed 7 million people overnight of their rights. And we think it's very important to push ahead at the Human Rights Council you know, with various strategies, whether it's urgent debates or special sessions, the appointment of a standing mandate holder, 
you know, or actual investigations that could potentially lead to prosecutions. Uh, you know, this is the standard playbook for any human rights crisis in the world. China should be no different. Uh, I wanted to, oh, go ahead, Larry. Well, I, I wanted to uh, come back to the, to the UN system, if I can, and ask this question. Uh, you look at what's been happening uh, in China, uh, well, since 1949, but uh, particularly since Xi Jinping came to power uh, in 2012, not just the assault on Hong Kong, but uh, as human rights as uh, Watch has eloquently documented, the internment of uh, over a million uh, Uyghur uh, Muslims in Xinjiang province uh, and the uh, escalating assault, which you have also documented on human rights lawyers and monitors. How does a country like this get elected to the UN Human Rights Council? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, tragically, there are not uh, standards really uh, for candidate countries. Uh, they're not even required to articulate a set of commitments. And, you know, arguably one of the worst problems is that it is a secret vote, uh, that you can't see how governments vote for one another. And so there's a lot of horse trading that goes on. You know, and invariably, really because there aren't standards, invariably the council will have on it notorious human rights violators. Uh, you know, and some of the other governments that just got elected from different regions are not ones that we would hold up as exemplars. Uh, but I do think it's very interesting that the number of votes that China got this time around 139 is significantly less than the last time it ran, which was four years ago, and it got 180 votes. Now, that's not a small drop in support. And I think it really is a statement from other countries saying, we don't like how you conduct yourself. You know, and that, look, that may be motivated by problems in a bilateral relationship. That may be about how China conducts itself at the Human Rights Council. It's, it's hard to know what specifically states were responding to. You know, but that's not a significant drop. Uh, and I'm, I'm quite sure that that got a lot of attention uh, in Beijing. I wanted to turn our- I should say that the other piece of the puzzle is that you know, Human Rights Council member states are expected to uphold the highest standards of human rights. Uh, you know, and I think a, a robust discussion both within the council and beyond the council about whether member states are rising to that uh, standard you know, is an important one to have. We got asked a lot whether it was better or worse uh, for the U.S. to walk away from the Human Rights Council under the last administration. And the reality was that, you know, it was the U.S. government that was, you know, racking up a decent number of significant human rights violations itself, you know, such that I think there's a, there would have been a reasonable debate to be had about whether it was uh, really living up to the highest standards itself. Mm -hmm. I wanted to turn our attention for a moment to COVID, uh, because in some sense, COVID has given uh, regimes like the Chinese uh, regime an opportunity to put forth the idea that its approach to managing people is superior to that of liberal democracies um, with respect to limiting rights of uh, freedom of expression, freedom of association, the lockdowns, the literally welding people's doors shut from the outside, 
uh, and that uh, this is a model, in fact, that is superior to um, to the uh, to the packages of rights that are enjoyed uh, in in more liberal societies. Um, what is your sense of of how we need to engage that argument around the world and uh, and the argument against it? If you don't mind my invoking a couple of historical parallels, you know, will we ever know how many people died in the Great Leap Forward or in the Cultural Revolution? Do we really know how many people died in China of SARS? You know, I, find, I think we find it hard given how much work we do on the gross restrictions of the freedom of expression inside China to really know what's happened. And so, you know, for arguments that, that take as their premise that the Chinese government has been successful in managing COVID, you know, to, to that we have to say, how do you know? But also, you know, we have clear evidence that some people suffered tremendously as a result, for example, of the lockdown. We know that citizen journalists have been forcibly disappeared. You know, months later, we still have no idea where these people are. Uh, you know, and, and it makes it difficult, <laughs> I think, to say that this model really is superior because there may be an extraordinary cost that we can't see now and we may never really able, be able to know. Uh, so I think that's, that's our response to that question. Sorry, Thank it, you. It, I've had to answer a lot and it drives me crazy. It may, Indeed. It, I, I have to say it actually makes me very angry. Um, partly because I think people are also incredibly dismissive of the extraordinary suffering that we do know about and that people have simply refused to engage. And I've found revolting some of the calls, for example, uh, you know, from members of the U.S. Congress saying that the Chinese government should be held accountable for the terrible harm that it's inflicted on people all over the world that don't even acknowledge the terrible harm that's been done to people inside China. And that's, that's I think, appallingly irresponsible and, and discriminatory and xenophobic and, and really failing to acknowledge the human cost inside China. Uh, you mentioned that uh, China did experience a significant decline in its support uh, for entry or re-election to the Human Rights Council. Uh, do you, but you've, we've also been discussing a pretty grim and deteriorating human rights situation inside China. Do you see any other positive signs either within China or globally of human rights and human rights defense gaining uh, a little bit more traction with regard to China? Let me give you two bright spots. Uh, one, I think, is the extraordinary community of human rights defenders inside China. You know, all across the country, people continue at enormous personal risk to you know, point out problematic government policies or try to take cases to court or you know, try to get some kind of redress in corruption cases, for example. And I think many of the people that we know and work with uh, are well aware of the risks that they're taking, but they also believe that, you know, that they have an obligation to try to make rights real. 
Uh, and I will say to you that as long as those people are continuing to do their work, we're sure going to be there, uh, right there with them, supporting them. But outside the country, we were one of the organizations that helped lead on a, a sign-on letter to the UN Secretary General and to the High Commissioner for Human Rights last year, echoing the call of 50 UN special procedures who suggest you know, far greater scrutiny of China. And it was actually following on China's last UPR that attracted far more attention from NGOs all over the world, you know, not just ones that focused like ours on China sort of over a long time, but environmental groups from Latin America or from Africa, for example, who had observed degradation as a result of Chinese investment, who were making submissions to the UPR process. And the sign-on letter wound up generating 450 signatories from something like 70 different countries. And it was, it was basically saying, we see serious problems inside China, committed, you know, human rights violations committed by the government. We see serious human rights violations outside of China that are affecting our communities too. And we all need this kind of mechanism to go to to monitor, to report, to recommend redress. And I think that kind of, of global civil society activism is, an, is a very encouraging sign for the near future. You know, at a time where we face so many challenges with respect to human rights domestically, internationally, I wanna just hold on to those bright spots, amplify and multiply them and end on a, on a more positive note. And so, um, thank you very much, Sophie Richardson, China Director for Human Rights Watch, for joining us today. It's been a wonderful conversation. It's been great to be with you.